Chapter 13. Restitution and Deterrence. If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the theft be certainly found in his hand alive, whether it be ox or ass or sheep, he shall restore double. Exodus 22, 1 and 4. We are required by God always to begin our analysis of any problem with the operating presupposition of the theocentric nature of all existence. Modern jurisprudence refuses to begin with God. It begins with man and man's needs, and generally progresses to the state and the state's needs. This is why modern jurisprudence is in near chaos. It is also why the court system is in near chaos. Deterring God's Wrath in History Whenever we speak of deterring crime, we must speak first of the deterrence of God's wrath against the community because of the court's unwillingness to impose God's justice within the community. The civil government is required by God to seek to deter crimes because all crimes are, above all, crimes against God. An unwillingness on the part of civil magistrates to enforce God's specified sanctions against certain specified public acts calls forth God's specified covenantal cursings against the community. This threat of God's sanctions is the fourth section of God's covenant. Without this covenant, either explicit or implicit, no community can exist. Only when we clearly recognize the theocentric nature of deterrence, and when we are ready to seek to have it recognized publicly in our civil and ecclesiastical statute books, can we legitimately begin to speak about deterring criminal behavior for the protection of the community. The Bible does not distinguish between civil law and criminal law. All sins are crimes against God, for they break His law. All public sins must be restrained by one or more of God's covenantal agencies of government, family, church, and state. Certain public transgressions of God's law are specified as acts to be punished by the civil magistrate. In the modern world, we call these acts crimes. The King James Version uses the word crime only twice, and crimes only twice. The civil government enforces biblical laws against such acts. The general guideline for designating a particular public act as a crime is this. If by failing to impose sanctions against certain specified public acts, the whole community could be subsequently threatened by God's non-civil sanctions, war, plague, and famine, then the civil government becomes God's designated agency of enforcement. The civil government's primary function is to protect the community against the wrath of God by enforcing His laws against public acts that threaten the survival of the community. The perverse practice of modern jurisprudence of allowing a person who has been declared legally innocent of a crime to be subsequently sued for damages in civil court by alleged victims cannot be found in the Bible. There is no distinction in the Bible between criminal law and civil law. If the civil magistrates are entitled to enforce a rule or law, then this rule or law should be classified in the modern world under a criminal statute. Because the state is not omniscient, God allows self-proclaimed victims of lawless behavior to sue other individuals in the presence of a civil magistrate, which we call civil procedure or torts. But if the state is the lawful agency of enforcement, then we are always talking about criminal acts. Continued injustice, if it can be biblically defined and publicly identified in advance through statute or judicial precedent, because it goes unpunished by the civil government, calls forth the wrath of God on the community. So there is ultimately no Bible-based distinction between civil law and criminal law. 
The Bible encourages the legitimate division of labor in identifying all types of criminal behavior, including such acts of injustice as breaking contracts or polluting the environment. The Bible recognizes that the state is not God. It is not omniscient. The initiation of public sanctions against all criminal acts, therefore, must not become a monopoly of civil officers. Citizens arrest and torts, where one person sues another in order to collect damages, are modern examples of the outworking of this biblical principle of the decentralization of law enforcement. All government begins with self-government. The bottom-up appeals court structure of covenant society, Exodus 18, is protected by not requiring that agents of the civil government initiate all civil government's sanctions against criminal behavior. Nevertheless, all disputes into which the state can legitimately intervene and settle by judicial decision must be regarded in a biblical commonwealth as criminal behavior. There is no biblical distinction between criminal law and civil law. It is therefore preposterous to argue, as liberal scholar Anthony Phillips argues concerning the Mosaic Law, that, quote, a crime is a breach of an obligation imposed by the law which is felt to endanger the community and which results in the punishment of the offender in the name of the community, but which is not the personal concern of the individual who may have suffered injury and who has no power to stop the prosecution nor derives any gain from it, end quote. It is preposterous because every transgression of the civil law that goes unpunished by the authorities raises the threat of God's judgment on the community, which is why unsolved murders required expiation in the Old Testament. 1. The sacrifice of a heifer, Deuteronomy 21, 1-7. And 2. The elders were required to pray, Be merciful, O Lord, unto the people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed, and lay not innocent blood unto thy people of Israel's charge, and the blood shall be forgiven them. Deuteronomy 21, 8. The state must regard as crimes against God all public transgressions for which the Bible specifies restitution payments to victims. Such acts are criminal acts against the community. Why? Because if they go unpunished, God threatens to curse the community. Thus, criminal law in the Bible was not enforced in the name of the community, but in the name of God, so as to protect the community from God's wrath. Restitution to God Phillips is consistent in his errors at least. He also argues that Hebrew covenant law was exclusively criminal law, meaning that its goal was solely the enforcement of public morals rather than civil law, torts, in which restitution to the victim was primary. This definition, if correct, would remove from covenant law all biblical statutes that require restitution to victims. What he is trying to do is separate the case laws of Exodus from the Ten Commandments. If believed, this argument would make it far easier for antinomians to reject the continuing validity of the case laws in New Testament times, for the case laws of Exodus and other books rest heavily on the imposition of restitution payments to victims. The antinomians could publicly claim allegiance to the Ten Commandments, but then they could distance themselves from the specific applications of these commandments through the case laws, for they have concluded that the case laws are unconnected to the Decalogue because they are civil laws rather than criminal laws. Phillips writes, quote, But it is the contention of this study that Israel herself understood the Decalogue as her criminal law code, and that the law contained in it and developed from it was sharply distinguished from her civil law. End quote. If true, then all you need to do to escape from the covenantal state enforced requirements of the Decalogue is to make the Ten Commandments appear ridiculous. This he attempts in chapter 2. Quote, 
Initially, only free adults were subject to Israel's criminal law, for only they could have entered into the covenant relationship with Yahweh. But women did not enter into the covenant relationship and were therefore outside the scope of the criminal law. They had no legal status, being the personal property first of their fathers and then of their husbands. End quote. The Decalogue is clearly preposterous, he implies. Presto, modern man is freed from any covenantal relationship to God. Man is on his own in the cosmos. He is autonomous. He shall be as God. His case rests, first and foremost, on his distinguishing of criminal law from civil law in terms of the presence of restitution requirements in civil law. Next, he excludes women from the covenant. Then he turns them into chattel slaves. His tactic is obvious, to make God's law appear ridiculous. But it is Phillips who is ridiculous, not the Bible. Like all humanists, he does not begin with the presupposition of a theocentric universe. He therefore does not begin his discussion of crimes and restitution with the understanding that all crimes are ultimately crimes against God, and all restitution payments belong ultimately to God as the ultimate injured party. It does not occur to him that all of God's curses are his imposition of restitution payments to himself as the ultimate victim. Because covenant breakers do not voluntarily repay to God what they owe him as the innocent victim, the ultimate object of their moral rebellion, he therefore repays them with inescapable final judgment. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Romans 12:19b. All sins are crimes against God. All sins are therefore judged by God, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 6:23a. Each person is a sinner in God's eyes, and therefore a criminal. The key question that must be answered during each person's life on earth, acknowledged by him or not, is this one. Will I allow Jesus Christ's payment of the God-imposed eternal penalty to serve as my substitutionary restitution payment to God, or will I instead choose to ignore the magnitude of this looming restitution payment and cross death's threshold autonomously? Anyone who makes the second choice will spend eternity in God's non-rehabilitative torture chambers. Victimless Crimes and Civil Judgment In the ultimate covenantal sense, it is improper to speak of victimless crimes. Every person who entices another to sin is bringing that person under the threat of God's negative sanctions in time and in eternity. God therefore threatens the whole community for its failure to impose civil sanctions against such crimes. If there were no threat of God's sanctions against the community for the failure of the magistrates to enforce all statutes assigned by the Bible to the civil magistrates for enforcement, then there would be no biblical justification for sanctions against such victimless crimes as prostitution, pornography, and drug dealing. Because he rejects the idea of such a covenant, classical liberal economist and legal theorist F.A. Hayek rejects laws against victimless crimes, saying that they are illegitimate interventions of the civil government, quote, at least where it is not believed that the whole group may be punished by a supernatural power for the sins of individuals, end quote. But that is the whole point. Such a community threatening God does exist, Many actions that are specified in the Bible as sins are not to be tried and judged by the civil magistrate, but this is not evidence of neglect by God. It is instead a restraint on the growth of messianic civil government. The absence of civil penalties against such designated sinful behavior indicates only a postponement of judgment until the sinner's final and eternal restitution payment to God. Through their public enforcement of God's law, civil magistrates warn people of the necessity of obeying God, the cosmic enforcer. By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Proverbs 16, 6b. 
The legitimate fear is to be both personal and national, for God's punishments in history are imposed on individuals and nations. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful, and the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues, and of long continuance, and sore sicknesses, and of long continuance. Deuteronomy 28, 58-59 The necessity of making restitution reminds the covenanted nation to fear the God who exacts a perfect restitution payment to himself on Judgment Day, and who brings his wrath in history as a warning of the final judgment to come. He brings his wrath either through lawfully constituted civil government, or, if civil government refuses to honor the terms of his covenant, through such visible judgments as wars, plagues, and famines. This is why the nation was warned to fear God, immediately after the presentation of the Ten Commandments. God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. Exodus 20, 20b. Jesus was not departing from the biblical view of judicial sanctions when he warned, Fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10.28b It is eternal punishment which is to serve as the covenantal foundation of all judicial sanctions. Civil government is supposed to reflect God's government. Public punishments deter evil. They remind men. Better temporal punishment that leads to repentance, personal and national, than eternal punishment that does not lead to repentance, personal. Repentance is possible only in history. Capital Punishment Phillips is consistently incorrect when he writes, quote, Modern theories of punishment are therefore totally inapplicable when considering reasons why ancient Israel executed her criminals, for the punishment was not looked at from the criminal's point of view. This extreme penalty was not designed to deter potential criminals, nor as an act of retribution, but as a means of preventing divine action by appeasing Yahweh's wrath, end quote. If criminal law was not looked at from the criminal's point of view, then why does the Bible repeatedly refer to the fear of external punishment by the civil authorities as a means of leading men to fear God and to obey His law? And all Israel shall hear and fear and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. Deuteronomy 13.11 Deterring future crimes is certainly one of the functions of capital punishment in a biblical law order. Capital punishment is also an act of retribution and restitution. And yes, it is also a means of preventing divine action by appeasing Yahweh's wrath. It is erroneous to argue exclusively in terms of either-or when considering the potential social motivations for capital punishment or any other required civil sanction in the Bible. Capital punishment points to the final judgment as no other civil penalty does. It reminds sinners of the ultimate restitution penalty that God will impose on all those who refuse to accept His Son's payment on their behalf. The civil government acknowledges that its most fearful form of punishment is to speed convicted criminals along into the courtroom of the cosmic judge. The magistrate announces that there is no way to restore the convicted criminal to fellowship in earthly society. He visibly becomes what he already is in principle, a sinner in the hands of an angry God. Final Judgment We see the ultimate example of this twofold aspect of restitution in the final judgment. Satan and his host, both human and angelic, pay for their rebellion with their lives. Their leavening power of corruption in history is reduced to zero. Their assets are transferred to God's people who inherit the earth. 
From a biblical standpoint, this transfer of legal title to the world was accomplished by Christ at Calvary. Then the rebels are thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 14-15 This eternal continual restitution payment honors God, while it simultaneously acts as the perfect deterrent to crime, a covenantal warning that remains before God's servants, both human and angelic, throughout eternity. Resurrected people will never sin again, whether they are covenant breakers or covenant keepers. Righteous people will not choose to sin, and resurrected sinners will not be able to. In the lake of fire there is only impotence. The ability to adhere to any of the terms of the dominion covenant cease when grace ceases, and there is no grace in the lake of fire. Then, why speak of the deterrence effect of eternal damnation? Because God's judgment is covenantal. Blessings and cursings, point four of the biblical covenant. There are always conditional aspects to God's covenant promises, as well as unconditional aspects. The promises of God are part of the structure of the covenant. There will be promises and blessings in the post-resurrection new heaven and new earth. Cursing and blessing are eternal, which reminds everyone of the covenant's conditions. Thus, the lake of fire can be spoken of covenantally as a perfect deterrent, for it deters all God-defying behavior forever. It also complements and reinforces the perfect obedience of covenant keepers, who know perfectly well about the perfect torment of covenant breakers, with their perfect bodies that possess the terrifying ability, like the burning bush that Moses saw, of not being destroyed by a perfect fire. God's perfection is manifested in His perfect wrath. It is not God's grace that keeps alive covenant breakers with their perfect bodies that are so sensitive to every subtle aspect of their endless torment. It is instead His uncompromising wrath that keeps them alive. Covenant promises, conditions, and sanctions are eternally perfect. The soul and body of every covenant breaker are reunited perfectly at the resurrection, so that each can experience the eternal torments of covenant judgment as unified and fully human. There's no dualism of body and soul in the lake of fire. Perfect justice brings with it a resurrection life permanently devoid of sin. Furthermore, the punishment perfectly fits the ethical crime of rebellion against God. It is a punishment whose magnitude God made quite plain from the beginning. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Genesis 2.17 Absolutely proportional restitution at the final judgment creates the conditions necessary to establish a perfect society beyond the final resurrection. Offsetting Reduced Risks of Detection the thief who steals a specially protected beast must suffer greater risks for stealing it when compared to any other kind of property. The sheep or ox can easily be slaughtered and eaten. This makes it far more difficult for the civil authorities to discover who the thief is and then prove it in court. Thus, the thief who steals an ox or sheep seems to have a greater likelihood of getting away with the crime. The law, therefore, imposes far higher penalties in case of ox stealing and sheep stealing. This offsets part of the self-subsidy, the reduction of the risk of detection that the thief receives when he slaughters the animal, thereby destroying the evidence. But what about selling the animals? This is the equivalent of kidnapping, for these particular animals represent man. Thus there is a higher penalty attached to their theft. This higher penalty relates to the symbolic aspect of the forbidden act of man-stealing. Selling a useful beast that can be taken into a different part of the country makes it easier for the thief to escape detection. The thief does not wear a stolen jewel or use a stolen tool which would make it easier to detect his crime locally. The animal, which was under the personal protection of its owner, is separated from the owner permanently. Biblical law therefore stipulates that the thief who does sell the beast is placed under greater risk, should he be proven to be the thief. 
he will be required to pay fourfold or fivefold restitution to the victim. This explanation may seem strained, but it is necessary if we are to make sense of Exodus 22.9, which regulates property placed in trust with a neighbor. If the neighbor loses the goods, they both must go before the civil magistrates. If the neighbor is found guilty, he pays double restitution. For all manner of trespass, whether it be for ox, for ass, for sheep, for raiment, or for any manner of lost thing, which another challengeth to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whom the judges shall condemn, he shall pay double unto his neighbor. Why should the neighbor be required to pay only double restitution for a sheep or ox in this case? What about fivefold and fourfold restitution? My answer, because the neighbor cannot conceal the crime the way that the outsider can when he slaughters or sells the animal. In short, it is easier for the victimized owner to prove his legal case against a neighbor than it is for him to prove his case against an unknown thief who disposes of the evidence. Thus, the penalty imposed on the neighbor is double restitution, which is the standard requirement for the theft of all other goods except slaughtered or sold oxen and sheep. Since the owner faces reduced difficulties in recovering his property, and the thief therefore faces increased risk, the penalty payment is reduced. Conclusion The primary goal of criminal law is to deter the wrath of God on society. All crimes are primarily crimes against God. Public sins are to be restrained by civil law in order to persuade God not to intervene in history and bring the nation under judgment in the name of the victims. If the authorities do not represent the victims, then God will bring judgment as their representative. Restitution is made to God by the civil authorities when they enforce His law. This is a public acknowledgment that God is sovereign over society, so His laws must be honored. When the authorities compel criminals to make restitution to their victims, the state is thereby making restitution to God. This is why the civil law of the Old Testament was also criminal law. A state that refuses to enforce God's civil law has become a criminal in the eyes of God. The modern libertarian concepts of victimless crimes is in error. Crimes are crimes against God, and if the state does not prohibit them, God threatens judgment in history against that society. Not all sins are crimes, for God has not created a law order that leads to the creation of a messianic state that polices everything continually. But the state must enforce morality, for all law is legislated morality. The only question is, whose morality should be legislated? God's or man's. If laws against criminals are enforced to deter God's wrath against society, then we should not be surprised to learn that these laws are also designed to deter future criminal behavior. God's law is future-oriented as well as past-oriented. It enforces laws that were delivered to man in the past and whose works are written in every human heart, Romans 2, 14 and 15. It also looks to the future. Men are to fear the future judgment of God and His representatives, civil magistrates. There is a greater penalty for slaughtering or selling stolen oxen or sheep because it is easier for the thief to escape detection. To counter the increased cost of detection, the law specifies fourfold or fivefold restitution for the two symbolic animals, sheep and oxen. The deterrence factor is unquestionably a consideration of biblical justice.